Hello, my name is O.J. Shabazz, and I'm privileged to be the servant or minister to the Harlem Church of Christ in New York City, New York. We meet at the corner of 127th and Lenox Avenue in the historic borough of Harlem, New York City. May I express my gratitude and my appreciation to all of you for viewing this first of what I hope to be many Facebook live messages relative to the climatic subject, the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God. I wish to begin today by providing you just a few fundamental tools of study in regard to how to view the material that I will be delivering over the subsequent uh, series. Among those tools of thinking would be, first of all, an accurate understanding of why we even need the Bible. Uh, why does man need the Bible? I want to assert to you that the Bible is God's scheme of redemption or God's plan to save mankind. Through the process of revelation, inspiration for our illumination, does God give us, through his word, his will, his ways, and ultimately how to worship him? The Bible, the canon, the entirety of it, all 66 books, is one book or canon which reveals to mortal mankind God's scheme or God's plan for the redemption of mankind. That is God's specific intent. That is the purpose. And as a result, the product of that is this grand old book that is called the Holy Bible. The Bible was never intended to answer every question and quibble that enters into the spirit of mankind. The focus and specific intent of it is to give man God's scheme of redemption and what one must do in order to be saved. I want to also suggest to you that when it is all possible... We want to allow definitional perspectives to come from God himself as found in the Bible. Oftentimes, men's uh, definitional perspectives are tainted by their own prejudices and their own views. While I am cognizant of the fact that it is not always possible to gain a definitional perspective from God himself, I want to assert that in this paradigm of study and this approach to studying the topic of revelation, inspiration, and illumination, we're going to be looking for definitions that have been provided by God. God is the best defense of himself. He is the best definer for himself. I third of all want to advance to you the notion that we should always apply the circle of context or what I refer to the circle of context. Uh, for many years I applied this principle, did not have a tag or designation from it, a tremendous uh, student of scripture, uh, Brother Orpheus J. Haywood, uh, uses the designation circle of context. I've often applied it, but did not know to refer to it as such. And so I want to suggest to you that one should use the circle of context. Often people throw out the designation context, context, use it in context. Of what context are you referring? When Brother Shabazz refers to studying scripture in context, I'm speaking of the immediate, remote, and ultimate context, a specific passage of scripture, those immediately around it, perhaps those that spanned even other chapters and, in many cases, even other books 
of the New and Old Testament canon so as to enjoy the literary context. The second notion of the circle of context is historical context. One needs to invest time in understanding the history of that time and much of the cultural influence upon the assertions that are made within a given uh, book or chapter uh, or verse or verses of the older New Testament canon. Then one must consider the linguistic context. I think that there is value to looking at syntax. When I say syntax, I'm simply speaking of the arrangements of words and how the definition of one word alters or changes or makes different the meaning of another word that is used in that same verse. Uh, linguistic context is very much a part of our everyday communication. If one wants to understand uh, specifically what one is articulating, you must listen for context. In what context do they mean that? And an examination of the arrangement of words tends to bring clarity. One may even consider the canonical context. So you want to look at immediate, remote, ultimate context, historical context, cultural context, linguistic context, and canonical context so as to gain as much pertinent information as possible about this very vast subject, revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the Word of God, fact or fiction. You're going to hear me time and again allude to something that a few of you have heard me speak of, particularly over the last 20 years across the United States of America. You have repeatedly, redundantly heard me refer to what I like to call the law of divine economy. The law of divine economy simply states God never does something for nothing, and it is a set of eyeglasses through which I use to study the scriptures. God is not wasteful. God never does something for nothing. I call that the law of divine economy, and it sends me probing, digging, examining, questioning why uh, a said thing has been done or said, and I am looking specifically for the law of divine economy. Don't be afraid, in the fifth place, to consult extra-biblical sources. Permit me to say that as we embark this study, that one never looks at extra-biblical sources so as to formulate one's faith. My faith, Christian's faith, are based on the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of the Word of God, and we offer no apology whatsoever for putting our faith, our hope, and our trust in the verbal plenary inerrant uh, revelation and inspiration of the Word of God. However, extra-biblical information often can uh, confirm and affirm truths that are written uh, within the perimeters of Holy Scripture. So let me just suggest to you that a few sources to uh, considering extra-biblical uh, sources may be among uh, the early church fathers. Now, the writings of the early church fathers ended somewhere around 700 AD. Uh, these are uh, uh, Christian, uh, quote-unquote, theologians, uh, of those who have studied the genre of, of Christian theology and their subsequent 
uh, findings and writings and quotations. Secondarily, one may consider as an extra-biblical source the writings of the Apostolic Fathers. The writings of the Apostolic Fathers were recorded in the 1st and 2nd centuries uh, A.D., these would be uh, individuals uh, who knew the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ themselves, and there are many uh, partial or whole quotations that have been extracted from that which they heard or saw or read relative to the apostolic era, if you will. Then there is the writing of the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. Um, I really do not want to invest a lot of time in talking about the seven primary uh, councils of Ephesus, Constantinople 1 and 2, the councils of Nicaea 1 and 2, um, the council of Smyrna, and, and so forth. But nonetheless, uh, the Nicene fathers would be those who have written a collection of writings that took place before the first council of Nicaea. The post-Nicene fathers would be a collection of writings that were penned, recorded, uh, after the Council of, of Nicaea, probably around uh, 325 AD. These are just a few of a number of extra-biblical sources. Again, one uses the extra-biblical sources not so as to establish one's faith, but to affirm uh, this very historical document known as the Holy Bible, which is the revelation, inspiration for our illumination that comes from God. And you will hear, hear me affirm not only today, but subsequently throughout these videos that unashamedly, uh, I believe that it is uh, God Almighty himself who reveals, who inspires for our information or illumination. Now, let me move on and give you what I'm going to call a paradigm, a framework of thinking, a roadmap for the purpose of application. Ladies and gentlemen, there are many individuals who seem to present themselves as masterful in amassing information. Permit me to suggest to you that the accumulation or the mass amassing of information is vastly different from the proper processing of the information that one has gathered. I hear one assert uh, often that we live in a super information highway of the internet and there are many books and sources available. Notwithstanding, I would gently suggest to you that the ability to find, locate, and amass information, whether it is in favor of verbal plenary inspiration or revelation inspiration and illumination of the Word of God, is vastly different from accurately processing the information that the individual has amassed. Now, I want to suggest to you that um, I'm going to be following this particular roadmap um, with which I need you to come. Number one, determination, definitions, delivery, and discovery relative to revelation and inspiration. Determination is by God. The definitions come from God, not lexicographers or commentators. And I'm not suggesting it is wrong to read them, but our reading of what those individuals report should always be anticlimactic to the definitions as supplied by the God who gave his very word. 
So I'm following the path of determination, delivery, and then discovery. Often textual criticism leaves us with the nomer and the misnotion that it is man's responsibility to determine what is inspired. I would advance to you the concept and the idea that man does not enjoy the privilege of determining inspiration and illumination. Man only is extended the privilege of discovering that which God Almighty himself has determined. Therefore, determination of the revelation and inspiration uh, in illumination of God is supplied by God himself. The delivery of it is supplied by God himself. The definitions relative to it are primarily, first and foremost, provided by God himself. And then man enjoys the privilege of discovering what God has determined and defined and delivered. Now, let me advance this. Revelation, that is what God did. That's what. Inspiration is how God did it. That's the how. Illumination is why God did it. Let me do that again. For the purposes of this study, probing the notion of revelation, inspiration, and illumination, fact or fiction, revelation is what God did. God revealed through his word, his way, and his wills. Inspiration is how. It is the vehicle, uh, as it were, that God chose to give us his revelation. And then illumination is our subsequent understanding, not um, relative to one's personal inter interpretation, not merely what one gets out of it, for God is not interested in what we get out of it. It is as a result of an accurate process of understanding what God revealed, how God revealed it, and then the why as to how uh, the why as to his revealing it has to do with the matter of illumination. Now, I'm going to begin with internal evidences and claims for inspiration, and I do so, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, unapologetically and un. Um, um, I offer no apology for starting with the vehicle of internal evidence based on this premise. If one feels privileged to use the Holy Bible to discredit and disprove the verbal inspiration and revelation of God, why then not can another use that same Bible to affirm the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God if men uh, continue, if women, if others, scholars, lay people, etc., continue to use, to discredit uh, the Word of God, then certainly I enjoy the privilege to uh, use the same Bible to affirm the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. So then I began with internal claims for Revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm aware of the fact that many of you want me to speed past this and deal with matters of translations, transmission, oral and textual tradition, and so forth. But please be patient with me. I'm coming to that, notwithstanding uh, this subject needs to be slowly and methodically presented so as to not brush over it with a number of general and, and uh, uh, uncomprehensive truths relative to this very vast subject. What are the Bible's internal claims for revelation? 
Let me suggest to you that when it comes to the word revelation, that it primarily and fundamentally means God made known, God revealed. Uh, the word uh, revelation is recorded 87 times in the old canon, eight times in the new canon. Uh, God revealed in four ways. Number one, by dreams, by vision by oral or verbal communication, and subsequently by written communication. Again, let me slow down and say to you that God communicated according to Old and New Canon uh, some 87 times by dreams. The word itself, dreams, are associated with God's revelation 87 times in the Old Canon and eight times in the New Canon. The word itself, vision or visions, in, uh, in the old canon is used 86 times and it's used 17 times in the New Testament. The notion of oral or verbal communication is documented in Hebrews chapter one, verses one to two, and I will primarily be taking my quotations from the American Standard of 1901, the King James translation, and occasionally the ESV and the New International Version. Primarily, they will come from the King James and from the American Standard of 1901. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manner, spake, I want to underscore spake, that's verbal, that's oral, in time past under the fathers by the prophets. So then in the old canon, he speaks by the prophets. In these last days, has spoken to us, has spoken, has spoken. I'm affirming the internal claim of oral or verbal revelation. In these last, has spoken by his son. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 will affirm as an internal evidence God's claim for, or rather for oral or verbal communication. Now I want to quickly go to uh, a few passages of scripture uh, that uh, definitively, factually, unconditionally affirm that both the old canon and the new canon were revealed and inspired by God Almighty himself. Uh, as to the revelation of the word of God, one may remember in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 4, or 14, where there the apostle Paul by inspiration writes, I have not seen, neither have ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man those things which God hath prepared for those who love him, but hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God, for what man knoweth the spirit of man, save the spirit of God. And then Paul continues to affirm the fact that the Holy Spirit revealed them unto him and other inspired writers. An internal claim for revelation and inspiration in the word of God. I have already referenced Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Permit me to then, as an internal evidence of revelation, refer you to 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 16 to 22. 
I'm going to read this from the King James translation of the New Testament Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 2, or rather chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, in the King James translation, you will find these words. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do, well, you do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place unto the day star dawn in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Another internal claim by a New Testament uh, writer as to the revelation of Almighty God. If you search out analytically the context of John 15, John 16, and read them in their entirety, one will discover that Jesus himself asserts that revelation would come by his sending the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would then do two things with the inspired writers or those who would subsequently receive revelation. He would remind them of those things that were said to him during his earthly ministry. And secondly, the Holy Spirit would show them things to come. Another affirmation and confirmation from the Holy Scriptures as to an internal evidence of the inspiration, or rather the revelation of Almighty God. I would that I had time to explore a plethora of other scriptures which affirm the revelation of God. Of course, time would not permit. Perhaps I should advance at this point the notion that if God said it once, how many other times must God say it in order for man to believe it? Yet, the New Testament canon, Old Testament canon uh, are replete with a plethora of affirmations from God himself that the Holy Bible is the revelation and inspiration for our illumination of the word of God. For the conservation of time, I'm going to now transition into the early stages of treating the notion of inspiration. It is interesting to me how many individuals brush past the reference inspiration. Let's talk about inspiration and then attempt to give a generic, unsubstantiated, unidentified definition of inspiration. I would like to advance to you that the best definition of inspiration does not come from lexicographers, uh, for many of their findings are often tainted with religious and theological prejudice that come from their respective backgrounds of quote-unquote faith. In addition, 
uh, many uh, lexicographers, many Bible dictionaries, and etc., report definitions out of the prejudice of their views of faith and out of their theological convictions, and so they speak to only one theory of or rather, or rather of inspiration. Allow me to quickly advance that there are a number and a growing number of theories of inspiration. I'm just going to give you the four most popular, uh, the four most treated by scholars down through the years and by students of the Bible, lay people, and others. Uh, there are four primary theories. The neo-orthodoxy view of inspiration, the dictation or mechanical view of inspiration, uh, the limited view of inspiration, and the view of plenary verbal inerrant inspiration. The neo-orthodox or the neo-orthodoxy view of inspiration um, in a nutshell repudiates and rejects that the Bible is the word of God and subsequently that it constitutes the, the inspiration of Jehovah God. Uh, it is a theory that has been debunked. And when I say debunked, I mean successfully not only answered, but refuted down through the many years and therefore is regarded by lovers of God, lovers of this book called the Holy Bible, uh, credible and noteworthy scholars. It has been rejected uh, as to having any credible basis whatsoever. The mechanical dictation view basically advocates that God exercised a control that allowed the giving of a word to be absent of style, of personality, and etc. Again, an assertion that has been advanced down through the years. Many lay people, students of the Bible, scholars have analyzed and reanalyzed, and it is, in my judgment, the mechanical dictation theory or view of inspiration has been found uh, to not be an indictment or a credible discrediting of the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. The final view is the view that I am espousing, the final view that uh, most credible scholars will affirm. Uh, it is what the Bible teaches. It is uh, the Christian's view of the Bible, and that is it does not contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is the verbal plenary inerrant inspiration of God. Verbal. God spake. Plenary. It is authoritative. Inerrant. It is without error. Inspiration. God breathed it. Verbal. Plenary. Inerrant. Inspiration. Verbal. God spake it. Plenary. It is all authoritative. Inerrant. It is without error or contradiction. Uh, inspiration. That which God himself breathed. I believe that one of the most dynamic uh, context in the old, which I skipped over uh, because I'm trying to hurriedly compact as much of this information as I can in, 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 uh, in a small frame of time. Please go back and look at Jeremiah 
36, particularly verses 1 to 4, to set the context of what happens in the remainder of Jeremiah 36. I do believe that Jeremiah chapter 36 is perhaps one of the most dynamic contexts of the entirety, not only, but perhaps one of the most dynamic contexts of all Old Testament scripture, which vividly, clearly affirms that God spake to uh, Jeremiah, that God revealed, that God had him write it on a scroll, and in the embodiment of Jeremiah 36, do we also see what happens when man is involved and destroys the original writing of Jeremiah. God then comes back to him and tells him to write it on a scroll again, and uh, he writes it again and ultimately delivers it to the people of God. Jeremiah 36 uh, is just replete with um, undeniable evidence as to the revelation of God in, in old canon. I then move to the New Testament. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul writes, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished under every good work. Again, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. That is a very critically important affirmation and a phrase that deserves questioning and probing. What then did Paul mean when he said all scripture is given by the inspiration of God? The word inspiration was used by Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 for the first time. The Greek culture was not familiar with that word. But the Apostle Paul uses a word given him by the Holy Spirit. Theonusta is the word, and therefore theonistic is the view of all scripture. Uh, theonusta is the definition of inspiration. The term is used for the power which the divine spirit put forth on the authors of scripture both Old and New Testament. Permit me to provide that uh, definition once again. Theonusta uh, is the word from the classical Kone Greek, the language that God chose to reveal his word, his will, and his way. Theonusta is a term that literally means God breathed. And it is a term used to describe the power uh, of the divine spirit that was put forth on the authors of scripture, both Old and New Testament. Now, I want you to do two things. Number one, pay attention to the phrase, all scripture. And for many years, ladies and gentlemen, I took the position that when Paul said all scripture, he could only be referring to old canon. And I publicly taught and took the position that all scripture could in no wise relate or refer to New Testament canon uh, because they didn't have scripture from the New Testament at that time. Uh, because I am, I'm not a scholar, but I am a student, and I continue to study and continue to study until such time 
that study led me to repent and to change of such a position. For that affirmation is everything but true. The all theonusta, the all scripture inspiration of God refers both to the old and to the new canon. Now I want to frame a question for your consideration. Forgive me because I perspire even when I, when I talk a little. Did the New Testament writers view each other's writings as scripture? Can we find instances where the New Testament writers referred to other New Testament writers' writings as scripture? I want to affirm that we, we absolutely can. On an untold number of occasions, it is evident conclusive, a matter of truth, and a matter of fact that inspired writers of the New Testament referred to other writings of the New Testament as scripture. Come with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, in verse 18, the apostle Paul writing to young Timothy made this statement. Notice uh, closely, First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18, for the scriptures saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox, or rather thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. All in one quotation, thou shalt, for the scriptures saith, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth, uh, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. What Paul does in this reference to scripture when he says the scriptures teaches is making reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. But when one looks back to Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4, one will readily notice that the part B clause of this quotation is not found in Deuteronomy 25, 4. The assertion um, and the laborer is worthy of his hire is not found uh, in Deuteronomy 25.4. And that's because in so doing, in this inspired account, the Apostle Paul does something that is called the use of a composite reference. A composite reference is when you take two different references and report them at the same time and attribute it to one source. The one source he attributed to is scripture. The two sources from which it came was not only Moses, but he quotes Luke chapter 10 and verse 7, for it was not Moses, but Luke that said, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Yet there is one composite report. Composite means combined together. And one source it is attributed to, that is scripture. This is one of many examples of the use of composite reference. But in this composite reference, it identifies what is meant by scripture. Luke wrote scripture as acknowledged 
by the Apostle Paul. Then 2 Timothy 3.16 refers to not only old canon, but New Testament canon when it comes to the matter of inspiration. The Apostle Peter does something very similar when he associates the writings of the Apostle Paul and he uh, designates them as Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, I'm going to conclude at verse 16. Listen to Brother Peter. This is 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. I think I gave you the wrong reference. 1 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning verse 15, and the account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved Paul wrote, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. Not only does he refer to scripture in other places, but the syntax and the, and the linguistic context bears out the fact that he refers to the, the epistles that were written by the Apostle Paul embodied are those things which were difficult to understand. And then Peter regards Paul's writings as scripture. Brother Shabazz, why are you so technically making this point? I want to make it clear that when Paul spake in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 and said all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, he does not just identify old canon, he is speaking of new canon irrespective of the fact that the canon had not been holistically amassed into one biblos or one book. It is an undeniable and sustained fact that through the use of instructive parallel, or rather, uh, as a result of the use of composite reference, that uh, Paul quotes Brother Luke and Moses, retributes it to Scripture, and therefore he regards Luke's writings as Scripture. Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. So then you can put your faith and your hope and your trust and your confidence in the fact that when we read New Canon, that it is just as verbally inspired uh, with plenary, inerrant inspiration as one finds in the Old Testament. Uh, these brazen attacks on Scripture cannot be substantiated whatsoever. Uh, so then... I, I want to suggest to you that uh, over 3,800 references 
may be located in canon, particularly among the Old Testament, to uh, verify the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. And again, these revelations came through dreams, visions, oral or verbal, and written communication from the God of eternal salvation. Now, I'm aware of the fact that you want me to hurriedly run uh, to the notion of textual preservation, the, the alleged issues of uh, transmission, uh, the matters of oral tradition, textual tra tradition, um, the difference uh, in translations, in the, the, the alleged problems with transliteration. I'm going to, uh, God willing, address all of those matters in due time, but I wanted to begin with a very elementary and fundamental and basic um, treating of this very vast subject of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Now, what have we said today? What we've said today is we need a few tools of thinking. If you employ other tools of thinking, may God bless you. I'm providing tools of thinking uh, suggestive for viewing these series of, of lessons. The tools of thinking, uh, we need to understand why we have the Bible. Uh, people keep raising many uh, objections and quibbles and questions and indictments and so forth that uh, has... Uh, uh, perhaps no basis whatsoever because God's objective in his divine economy as he conveys to us his eternal scheme of redemption, the object of the Bible is to tell man what to do to be saved. It has to do with God's scheme or plan for the saving of our souls. Again, I would recommend that we look at the Biblos, not merely as the Old and New Testament canon, but that we look at it uh, as one book. Uh, consistently, the story runs for the 66 books. I'll get to the matters of uh, the pseudography and, 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 and the notice notions of, of, of uh, uh, apocrypha writings. We'll talk about that, I hope, in some degree of detail in, in future lessons. Nonetheless, the, the Biblos or the book should be looked at as one continual line of communication with the exception uh, there are 400 years of no communication from God in the intertestament uh, uh, period between the what we call the book of Malachi and the gospel according to Matthew. And I don't want to get into an intellectual debate about which books are numerically and chronologically should be placed in the Bible. The point is there is 400 years of no communication from God himself uh, between what we call the book of Malachi and what is recorded as the gospel according to Matthew. So I want to suggest to you that's the purpose of, of, uh, uh, of the Bible. It is to give to us, not to answer for us where the, where the devil came from or why did God permit sin and uh, where did Cain get his wife. And those serve as, a, as some sort of a basis as to whether we should put our hope, our trust, our faith, and our confidence in the God of eternal salvation. I've given you further uh, the notion that when it's at all possible, let's look to God for a definitional perspective. When we study, we're going to study by the application of the circle of context, not merely the vague and germane reference 
of context, but as I've cited uh, a, a tremendous student of the Bible, uh, Brother Orpheus J. Haywood, my little brother, by the way, uh, I've used this approach for many years, but did not know to call it this, and I really believe that this is an accurate affirmation. It is the circle of context, not only the immediate, the remote, and the uh, ultimate context, the verse, the verse around it, uh, perhaps the chapter, uh, perhaps the book, perhaps the other books, immediate, remote, and ultimate context, but the historical context. What does history tell us from credible historians? The cultural context, some understanding about the culture uh, of its time in antiquity, the linguistic context, inclusive of taking a look at syntax, and syntax is important. Not, I know it's a, a, a $50 million word, but it really just simply means the arrangement of words and how the definition of those words change other words in the context, uh, the canonical context. And then I want to say to you that we look for the law of divine economy. God never does something for nothing. And I'm, I use that as a, a, a set of proverbial eyeglasses through which I view uh, God and scripture. God cannot be wasteful. God has never done anything without great specificity. There are reasons for everything that the God of eternal salvation does, whether we are able to ascertain an accurate understanding of what God does or not is immaterial to the fact that God uh, in his infinite power and wisdom uh, in no wise is wasteful or does anything, does not do something for nothing. Uh, in a very simple sense, if I were in the pulpit this morning and I were talking about the law of divine economy, I wouldn't even call it the law of divine economy. I would just say to the church, church, God never does something for nothing. I don't need to use a theological designation that is a complex uh, in the minds of some as the law of divine economy. Nonetheless, that is how I'm going to reference it. Don't be afraid to consult extra-biblical sources. In the Church of Christ, we are not afraid of extra-biblical uh, sources, writings, even of those who are antithetical or against or tactful of uh, pure New Testament Christianity. Uh, don't try to give the answers if you're not clear about the questions. So in order to be clear about the questions, you've got to read what the questions are. But because people ask questions does not in and of itself constitute validity. Nor does it serve as a basis for you to bail ship and abandon your Christian beliefs because there are, in your mind, people who are smart, who have asked questions and made indictments and uh, uh, leveled charges against verbal plenary inspiration, the whole notion of of Christological doctrine or the doctrine of Christology, which is the doctrine of Christology is the study of the Messiahship and the Messiah conclusively is Jesus Christ. In the context in which I reference it, when I speak of theology, I specifically mean an analytical look at or study or, or practices that result uh, from the systems of the Christian faith. That is my particular treating and subsequent use of the word theology. Ladies and gentlemen, words, regardless of what your words are, are always subject to the context in which you intend them. And so if I want you to accurately, with clarity and definity, 
uh, understand the manner in which I'm using it, then I must give you a contextual perspective of how I use the word. So don't be afraid to look at the early church fathers, which again, their writings ended about 700 AD. Look at the apostolic fathers, their writings end, well, they wrote rather, uh, during the first and second centuries uh, AD. Uh, the apostolic fathers are those who lived uh, closest to the time of the apostles and knew uh, many of them, the apostles themselves. Uh, look at the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. If my office were not a mess, I'd step away from what I call my study library and go to the other side and show you in the, uh, and I should have pulled down a copy of, of, of the post and anti-post Nicene fathers. Perhaps I'll do that uh, in another video. Uh, so I've given you a definitional perspective of revelation, inspiration, illumination. I've given you a paradigm or roadmap for application because it doesn't make sense to amass all this information if we can't apply it. So I've endeavored in my feeble way to give you a paradigm or roadmap for application of the information that I'm giving you. And that particular paradigm or roadmap is to look at this from this standpoint, determination, definition, dis delivery, and discovery. God determines. Man does not have the privilege of, of determining what constitutes inspiration or what constitutes scripture. That determination came from God. In the long ago, man does not have the privilege to determine. He only has the privilege to discover what God himself has determined. The definitions should primarily always come from God, for God is the best defender of himself. Often men's definitions are tainted and come with prejudice. Uh, the delivery, uh, it comes from God. Uh, man did not deliver. Psalm 68, 11, uh, the Lord gave the word. He delivered it. Great are the company of them that publish it. And then man's discovery. And in the process of discovery, we then get into textual criticism, matters of trans, uh, transmission uh, of, of, of oral and textual tradition, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the writings uh, in, in the many of the manuscripts and how many manuscripts and fragments are available and, and so on and so on, which I hope to treat in, at a later time. So um, I've given you a, a biblical, uh, two biblical internal claims. I've been clear of the methods and, uh, among which God speaks. Uh, I want you to listen to my verbiage among which he speaks. God reveals by dreams, by visions, by oral and verbal communication and written communication. And I've given you some of the stats on the Old and New Testament times where you can actually find the word itself, dreams, 87 times in the Old Canon, 8 times in the New Canon, visions, 86 times in the Old Canon, the actual word uh, vision in uh, uh, the new, new canon some 17 times. And then I've given you internal evidence of oral and verbal communication, Hebrews 1.1, as does Jeremiah 36, and uh, just an endless of other. The Bible, old and new canon, is replete. Uh, by replete, I mean filled with uh, references of internal claims of revelation and inspiration. We've discussed Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 14, Hebrew writer in he or Hebrews chapter 1, 1 to 2, Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21, and the claims of Jesus. I've asked you in your own time to read John 16, John 15, and the notion that Jesus affirms uh, that uh, there will be a time of verbal inspiration. We've given you a definition, a definition of a theonusta and that subsequently, which is theonistic. Uh, God, God breathed 
uh, and uh, all scripture reference of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 uh, is inclusive of old canon and new canon as well. Well, I know that uh, there's so much more I want to say, but there's one or two other things that I need to do uh, before I go. And I beg of you to give me just a few more moments. Uh, and, and, and that is, um, please view the brief video I did, even though I did it upside down. And I'm praying that this one I did today is not sideways or upside down. This animal for me is totally unfamiliar. Uh, I'm not a Facebook Live uh, expert. I've never done this before. Um, I, I felt compelled to do it because of my compassion that I plan to stand in defense of the Bible and of the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. And I know of no responsible student among churches of Christ that will shy away from probing questions, etc., that challenge these debunked, many times debunked over and repetitively and redundant, rebunked, uh, or rather debunked allegations, charges, and so-called alleged contradictions of the Bible that are supposed to have some credibility that causes you and I to abandon their faith. Uh, let me move on and say, uh, brother and sister, why would you allow someone to make you feel guilty or less about having a thing such as faith. There is no human being on the planet Earth that does not operate daily by some manifestation of faith. All human beings put their trust, their hope, their confidence, their belief, and get their assurance from some application of faith. Why then should the Christian community feel degraded and accept attacks of derision because we put our faith, our trust, our hope, and our confidence in the Word of God. If you work a job, you work that job by faith. The faith is entailed in the fact that you put your trust, your hope, your faith, and your confidence in the fact that your employer will pay every employee on whatever designated or planned or projected day of payment you anticipate. The reason why you keep going to that job Monday through Thursday is because by faith, you believe that you're going to be paid on Friday. I mean, I can use many applications. If you drive an automobile, you certainly are a uh, animal of faith. You put faith in the fact that when you put your foot on the brake of that mechanical device, it will stop as your foot has commanded and as the automobile has been designed to do elsewise. I must uh, concede that you would never get behind the wheel of an automobile. Illustrations have never been offered to prove anything. And I do not offer these analogies to prove anything, but to confirm. And that's what stories and uh, um, that is what, in fact, uh, these kinds of rehearsings are designed to do. I'm not saying it proves anything. I'm saying it affirms my initial affirmation. And that is we who are in the church of Christ, we who are Believers in pure New Testament Christianity absolutely, positively, unequivocally refuse to be made ashamed or to buy in to the dupe that we are somehow weak and self-dependent because we exercise faith.
You can engage little in this life without the vehicle of faith. And we are not ashamed of the fact that the Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Pardon me for one moment while I go on a rant. And I want to apologize for this rant. I do think that as we view the Bible, that this rant may be of some clarity uh, for those who are listening. I want to first, before I enjoy this short rant, apologize if what I'm about to say is offensive to any particular race or culture or people. Yet I need to say this, particularly because I preach and teach and serve in a congregation that has a growing population of what is referred to as millennials who have many questions. And I think it's a beautiful thing that you give the privilege of questioning the church and give us an opportunity to provide you the evidence. However, the assertion made by many millennials and many, many others that the Bible is a white man's book filled with white man's doctrine and is not for black people. The church does not teach that which is relevant to black culture is the most absolute ridiculous thing that I have ever heard in all of my life. I, I suggest to you gently and with humility, the question, what book are you reading called the Bible? The Bible is the blackest book on the planet Earth. Now, I want to slow down and tell you what I mean by black. Number one, as relates to the scheme of redemption, there is no salvation in color, in culture. Salvation is not, nor was it ever intended by God to be in color or to be in culture. Salvation is in Jesus Christ. Notwithstanding, the Bible is replete with black or slash individuals of color. The problem is we continue to treat an ancient document, <coughs> a historical document, the most historical document on the face of the earth. We continue to do it through the eyeglasses of a Western thinking, a Western civilization, and a Western culture. Um, when others of other cultures often refer to the notion of black, it begs the question, by what do you mean when you say black? There are many people of color who could come under the climatic uh, definition of black. It's just that other cultures uh, more treat people of color oftentimes with the designation in black, whereas in America we tend to mean people of Afro-American descent or people who are Americans who trace their roots to African descent compared to Eurocentric or those who are non-Afro-Americans. That is our framework of thinking when we talk about black. Again, the Bible is the blackest book on earth. Go back to Genesis chapter 10. Look at the catalog of the nations. Pay attention to Ham. Uh, 
a, a, nation, a man and, and subsequently a nation of color. Do you not understand that the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 was a man of color? A man who was a man of prestige and position and authority and power and a man from whom many of us, if not most of us, look to for the apostolic pattern of the immersion in water for the remission of our past sins. He was in an American Afrocentric Western cultured kind of designation, a black man. So then this notion that the Bible is a white book. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you never throw the baby out because the bathwater is dirty. The Bible is not under indictment because there are those that abuse it, misrepresent it, distort it, and present it in an ungod-intended way. If one used the Bible to substantiate slavery is no indictment against the God of the Bible or the writing of his revelation and inspiration. It is an indictment against the individual that condescendingly and uh, um, uh, dishonestly uses the word of Jehovah God. Uh, the fact of the matter is there is no salvation in color or in culture. Salvation is in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And salvation is in and through he and by he alone, or him alone. And so then this notion that the church is not preaching a relevant message because we are not speaking to black people. We are speaking to all people, Caucasian people, Chinese people, German people, Asian people. We're speaking to all mankind. The message is to the world and not to a specific culture of people. And I repudiate, denounce, and reject the assertion. All right, I'm finished with my rant. Uh, and I want to apologize if my choice of terminology has offended anyone uh, because the Bible is for Caucasian people, uh, Eurocentric people, <laughs> the Bible, uh, the word of God, salvation, the Christ, it came for all of us. Number of materials I'd like to recommend to you. Uh, I talked about, oh boy, this is going to come backwards. You won't be able to see it, my Lord. Well, I have to do, choose to do this in another way. Um, I treated, uh, there was posted on the internet, recently an alleged contradiction uh, based on one's antithetical view of the gospel according to Matthew uh, 27, 9 and 10. And um, you heard my composite reference argument and I won't go back and rehearse that. The video is out there. It's out there forever. Uh, please understand the, the use of composite reference and how it is often used in scripture and does not in any wise constitute a contradiction. If I need to go back into that uh, at another time, I'll be more than happy to. Um, but there, there, there are a number of, listen, these indictments against the verbal plenary inspiration of the word of God, these indictments and attacks on uh, Christology and, and Christian theology has been going on for much longer than the majority of us are old on the face of the earth. Uh, these uh, charges, people have been trying to, to uh, discredit the Bible for hundreds of years unsuccessfully. And uh, there is nothing of which I am aware out there that has not been refuted successfully and debunked. And that is why um, 
uh, I've referenced and others reference that many of the questions are old questions and there's nothing wrong in resurfacing an old question, but let's not pretend as though there is not a plethora of information out there that has to do with both the antithetical questions and uh, the respective answers. The material is just, it's, it's, it's overwhelming out there. Josh McDowell and, and Don Stewart teamed up in a work called uh, Answers, uh, Tough Questions, uh, Skeptics Ask About the Christian Faith. It's an excellent read. Uh, I'm not suggesting that they are scholars, but their material is an excellent and easy read. The book, The Divine Inspiration by Gershon is a, a phenomenal uh, read an easy read where he treats uh, the meaning of of uh, inspiration and uh, he talks about its scriptural proof and doctrinal aspects and objections. An excellent read. Uh, in 1987, the Proceedings of the Conference on Biblical Inerrancy was put out by the Conservative Baptist Church. Um, it is a, a tremendous read as they treat holistically the notion of verbal plenary inspiration, the inerrancy of the Word of God. It is uh, breached by a number of students of the Word of God, not to propagate a particular genre of faith, but to treat the specific notion of the inerrancy of the Word of God. The entire conference in 1987 was dedicated to the inerrancy or the or biblical inerrancy. It's called, again, the Proceedings of, of the Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. I also would like to recommend to you, if you're searching uh, information that's at, that is attackful on uh, New Testament Christianity, Christology, theology, uh, Bible Difficulties and Seeming Contradictions, an excellent read by women, uh, William Ardit. It's an excellent read. I would suggest that you, that you reach out and, and you read it. Um, if you're looking for information to weigh against it and you're looking for things that are antithetical, you might want to give a cursory read of The Philosophy of Religion by David Trueblood. And to a great extent, there are many antithetical views. When I say antithetical views that attack and are against Christianity, folk, you can't give answers if you don't know the questions. Who's afraid to read these materials? Someone says, don't, don't give them those sources because you're going to destroy people's faith. Listen to me. We can't give answers if we don't know the questions. And what I'm saying is be prepared and know what may come against you. And consequently, you are standing in defense. The Bible versus liberalism on a, a tremendous read, not by one writer, but by um, a host of individuals uh, who treat all manner of subjects, biblical inerrancy, inspiration, the, the uh, theories regarding inspiration, and so on and so on. Already Defense by McDowell is a tremendous read. And what he does, McDowell does, is he provides over 60 vital lines of defense for Christianity. Well, Brother Shabazz, if you give people your resources, they're going to know how to come against you. Listen, truth is the truth. It's not a matter of trying, in the Church of Christ, we've never camouflaged information or ran from information or hid from information. Ladies and gentlemen, it is what it is, and, and the word of God liveth and abideth forever, and it shall stand forever. Uh, in terms of antithetical positions um, against, uh, I get the distinct impression that many are reading uh, the works of Bart. Uh, uh, Bart Ehrman. Dr. Bart Ehrman is truly a contemporary 
of our time. He is a specific scholar of textual criticism, particularly textual criticism of the Greek. What is a scholar? A scholar is someone who has given their entire life to one genre of study. I hear people refer to themselves as scholars. Of what are you a scholar? Ladies and gentlemen, I am not a scholar. There are anthropologists that have been studying anthropology the entirety of their life and career, and that is their area of expertise. There are those who have given their entire life, not to history, not to apologetics, not but specifically to textual criticism, and therefore their entire life's work, their writings and findings are attributed to a specific area of genre. It is not just about an individual who has read a lot and studied a lot, and knows a lot, does not constitute a scholar. Um, by the way, in my opinion, Dr. Bert Ehrman is a debunked scholar. When I say debunked, I don't mean that in terms of a, 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 a term of derision. I'm not attacking him. Uh, somebody said, well, Brother Shabazz, can you refute him? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I in no wise can refute, debate, and successfully withstand a scholar who has given his entire life to one genre of study. However, there are many of his equals who have written and answered and provided truths that dismantle the claims of men who are antithetical or against the verbal plenary inspiration of the word of God. I don't have that much ego and pride. I, I'm not on a mission to show people how smart and how intelligent and how studied I am. I can debate those who are my equals, uh, but I would never step into an arena, and I think it's a fruitless assertion, it proves absolutely nothing when you say, if you cite that, can you refute him? How absolutely preposterous. I make no pretense, uh, you, you no pretense whatsoever to be able to divide. However, it is interesting to me that Dr. Bart, Bart uh, Ehrman in his book, Misquoting Jesus, released about 2005, very quickly became... Uh, one of New York uh, Times bestseller list and remained there for a number of weeks, uh, served as a professor for many years, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It's interesting how he refuses to engage Dr. Craig A. Evans. Dr. Craig A. Evans wrote a synopsis of rebuttal to his book on misquoting Jesus. And uh, there are a plethora of others. Uh, Read after Dr. Randy Richards, who wrote Use of Secretaries. Uh, if you're going to read Bart Ehrman and others, even the writings of his mentor. Uh, read the work of Walton and Sandy, The Lost World of Scripture. If we're going to read antithetical information, uh, read Robert uh, McLeaver's, uh, in his writings, In Memory of Jesus and the scriptures, or rather, and the synoptic gospels. And I could go on and on and on. My point is, 
there are many antithetical attacks and writings which we among the churches of Christ have seen as long as New Testament Christianity has been around. We know they are out there. The moral majority, if not all, every one of them have been debunked. They've been answered. They've been rebutted uh, and so forth. And so it is no claim. This, did you all know? Are you aware of? What about this? What about that? These are these are long-standing allegations. Well, my time is about up. One final thing. The designation alleged contradiction. The word alleged means unproven. So then, when one asserts an alleged contradiction or an alleged error, what you are saying is you would like to present an unproven error. There's no proof that it is truly an error. It is more accurately a difficulty. There is a vast difference between a difficulty and an error or something that is erroneous in scripture. And so I thought I'd just pass that on. I'm excited about coming back to you, God willing, on uh, next Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we continue with part two of this study, the revelation, inspiration, and illumination of the word of God, fact or fiction. And we will continue to unravel this math, uh, mammoth subject. Ladies and gentlemen, the word of God, the Bible is right. And it can be trusted. It is without contradiction or error. And I'm going to substantiate the facts uh, as they have been conveyed to mortal mankind. Thank you for your time. It means so much to me. My prayer is that the God of eternal salvation will bless you and that he will bless you real good.